Now, I share this story often because it was such a pivotal experience of my life. Uh, but when I was in college, I joined a parachurch college ministry organization, uh, and it was called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, and my sophomore year, uh, as a participant of what we called CRU, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, we went on summer mission trips, which we called summer projects. Uh, and, and I remember during that summer, uh, I, I was excited. I was enthusiastic about going on this mission trip. It was either go live at home for the summer or go on this mission trip all summer long. And I decided to sacrifice myself, my summer, uh, and be the holy and Christian college student that I was and go to the mean streets of Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, where the, the mission or the project that they called it was to uh, evangelize on the beach to summer breakers uh, in Daytona. Apparently, I didn't know this, but that's kind of the Hawaii or the California of the South. And so uh, it was a very popular place during the summertime to be in Daytona Beach. And so, again, roughing it in a hotel on the beach on A1A Street. Uh, if you're familiar with Vanilla Ice, then you know what I'm talking about. A okay, maybe just me. Okay, uh, we were right on the beach on, in a hotel. There was like 50 to 60 of us and they had some campus crusade had some kind of agreement with this hotel where they would bring all these people uh, so that they could evangelize all summer. Uh, and the way we were trained to evangelize with, with crusade, campus crusade, was to go on the beach uh, with a little note card and to go to each summer breaker, as many as we can, and ask them the question, if you were to die today, where would you go? And the idea of that was to ask that question and then have it stir conversations regarding faith and religion and afterlife and God and atheism or whatever it is. And oftentimes that happened. We really had good conversations. And then after that, I would break out this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And I would tell them that here's what you need to do to believe in God, to be a Christian, to really solidify actually where you would go after you die. Uh, number one is who God is. Number two is how, how much of a sinner we are. Number three is that Jesus died for our sins. And number four, because of Jesus' death, we can be bridged with God and have a relationship with God and experience eternal life. Now, don't get me wrong, like this was a good thing. And, and to be honest, if it wasn't for Campus Crusade for Christ, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. So I'm very much indebted and grateful for my experience there. And I also acknowledge that some of the methodology we used was probably not the most loving, was not the most healthiest, and oftentimes even manipulative. But the reality is that was kind of the way evangelism was done uh, back then, for a long time, and oftentimes still is, depending on where you live. But what I remember most about that summer is that we would gather as a group. Uh, I think it was about once or twice a week. Uh, we would gather in this auditorium of 50 to 60 of us, and many people would raise their hand to tell people or to share 
the good news of how many people that were converted within their conversations. How many people said what we'd call the sinner's prayer after hearing the four spiritual laws. And oftentimes we'd hear numbers like, oh, I had five, I had 10, I had eight, I had three, I had whatever it is. And after each number, we would applaud and we would say that there's a party going on in heaven, which I also believe is true. Now, the, the thing that I think about and why this is so memorable to me in good and, and really ways that we can learn from, uh, it's that we had a misunderstanding of what it meant to be missionaries, to be, in other words, mis- on mission for the kingdom of God. See, we had the idea, we were under the impression that to be on mission for God's kingdom is what we did, not who we were. We were under the impression that being on mission to go to share the good news, to offer hope in Jesus Christ was, was an event that we did. And once we finished or accomplished the event, it was over. But I would say that was a huge mistake in our part in understanding what it means to be missional people, to be people on mission instead of these events of something that we, we do or, or that we did. Being on mission is who we were created to be, who we were called once we said yes to Jesus. <clears throat> and this does something, this misunderstanding does something to the Christian psyche. It does at least, and I'll just name at least three things that I believe it does. Number one, uh, we develop a constant uh, need to be the Savior rather than acknowledging needing a Savior. I'll say that again. Well, oftentimes when we have this misunderstanding of this mission being an event rather than something that we, who, who we are, who we're called to be, the problem is we develop a constant need to be the Savior and never the one who needs a Savior. Number two, it creates a hierarchical structure where the right, and I say that in quotes, the right belief is the degree of one's worth. And when this happens, at best, the results are arrogance, self-righteousness, pride. And we've seen this even within ourselves. Remember the first weeks that you became a Christian. And and maybe, again, I'm projecting here. I remember the way that I was behaving and the way that I was constantly judging others and telling people how they were wrong. And even my own family were getting sick of me because of my own self-righteousness and my arrogance and my pride because I had mistaken uh, that to be on mission was an event, that it was my job to convert people. It made me see people as projects, as objects needing to be saved. And guess what? I was the Savior. And until we have a right understanding of what it means to be on mission, A, we'll oftentimes be the one who believes we can save people rather than understanding that we need to be saved ourselves from G- with Jesus. And second, again, it creates this hierarchical structure saying that because I believe the right things, I'm right, you're wrong. And again, at best, that's arrogance, self-righteousness, pride. At worst, it results in what we've seen in, in history as colonialism, racism, and violence. We've seen this in, in the U.S., U.S. and world history. 
particularly with post-Constantine, with the, with the Crusades. We've seen this, the ugliness, the, the violence. We've seen this most recently with people, again, this isn't a political statement, but people storming the Capitol with Jesus banners. Now, again, that's not a political statement, it's just facts. That people under the name of Jesus, believing that they have the right beliefs, went in and stormed the Capitol and hurt people and, and, and caused chaos. And there's so many other ways we see this in our lives. And three, it oftentimes, and we've seen this as well, having the wrong interpretation of what it means to be on mission creates an us versus them attitude and mentality, which further creates polarization. And I think many would agree that at this point in time, that is the last thing that we need. It creates this polarization where oftentimes we're left with a hero and a villain. And as, as people that evangelize, guess what bucket we put ourselves into? The hero bucket. I love one theologian and author, her name is Erna Kim Hackett, says this. Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess or prince in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the women anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world, us, who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens, and this is us, we, I would say, have no lens for locating ourselves rightly in scripture or society. Which it concludes with this, and it has made them blind, and really, again, us, made us blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. Now, again, until we get this piece right, that mission is who we are, it's who we are, it's who we are, it's who we are, not what we do. Until we get this right, we will often fall to the temptation of seeing people merely as projects to be saved, to be accomplished, to win, to conquer, rather than people as the imago Dei, the image of God, people, those that have been created in the beautiful image of God since the beginning of time. We'll fa we will fail to do this. Now again, I say this, going on mission trips, sharing your faith to your friends and even strangers is obviously, it's not wrong. These can be good things. In fact, I just went on a mission trip just a couple of years ago to Rwanda, and it was incredibly life-changing. But what needs to happen is that we need a more holistic understanding of Jesus' command to us. And a much better way to say it is we need a, a better and a more holistic understanding of what Jesus not only commands of us, but has commissioned in us, to us. You see, in Matthew chapter 28, the verses that we just read this morning, Jesus, here's the context, Jesus had died, he had resurrected from the dead, and he comes back and gives 
these last parting words, which are the words that we just read, while he was on earth before going to be with the Father. And it's what Christians have historically and traditionally have called uh, the Great Commission. And here's what one theologian and author and New Testament professor named Donald Hagner, he says this about the Great Commission. The resurrection narrative comes to its climax, as does the entire gospel in this final majestic pericope, which just means story. Here, as promised, the risen Jesus appears to them, the disciples. Jesus appears to the disciples. And here they receive their commission in the famous words that have become the hallmark of the gospel of Matthew. And particularly, he's speaking about these verses in 19 to 20. Specifically, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am always with you to the end of the age. Now, in order to have this holistic understanding of Matthew 28... We have to, what I like to do is do some, it's it's a kind of a a fancy, geeky word in the Christian world called exegesis, meaning we have to understand the passage, the original language, the context, the historicity of it. And so I won't bore you too much, but I want to give you a couple couple things to be thinking about uh, in order to make this more holistic and really more accurate. The word go, where it says go and make disciples, in the Koine Greek, which is the original Greek of the New Testament, the original language of the New Testament, the word go is the word porientis, porientis. And you have to go back to your English class, and maybe even elementary school English class. Porientis is a word that what we would call a participle, which is a verb. Okay, so it's a verb, it's an action word. And it's in the aorist tense. And that's really much more uh, applicable in Koine Greek and Classical Greek. But the aorist tense means that it's a word that's without completion. It's a a continuation word, verb, a participle. So go, again, it's, it's it's a verb, it's a participle. And it's in the aorist tense, which means it's without completion. Second... Make disciples. So go and make disciples. Make disciples in the Koine is Mathetuse. Mathetuse. Which in the English translation, whether it's the NIV, I use the NRSV, whatever version you use, it's typically two words, right? Make disciples. Two words. And the way that we interpret that, especially in English, the first word is the verb to make. The second word is the noun, right? Disciples, person, place, or thing. And so what we oftentimes read is that we have to make something. We have to create. We have to make sure that people become disciples. We make disciples. But the funny thing is, in the original, again, Koine Greek, this isn't two words. It's not make disciples. It's just one word, and it's the word disciple. And it's in the imperative. And again, this is also in the verb. And so an imperative means it's like, a, it's like an exclamation mark. Disciple. Your job is to disciple. 
And so a better or more accurate understanding, you could read it something like this. As you are going, again, because it's not a place that you go to. It's not an event that you do. It's a it's an aspect of our life that is without completion. There's no ending to this. And so a better understanding might be, as you are going, disciple. As you are, go- as you are going to work, disciple. As you are going to school, disciple. As you are playing with your children, disciple. As you are hanging out with your spouse or your roommate or your friends, disciple. As you are in relationship with others, disciple. As you are going to wherever you are going in your life, in the ordinary, disciple. And the reason this is so important to understand is that it changes the framework of what it means to be on mission. Again, it's no longer a one-time event, but it's a lifelong journey. It's no longer what we do, but it's who we are. And it doesn't have to be in a faraway place, although it can be, but it can be in your own neighborhood. As you're taking a walk, as you're going to the store. It can be in your schools. It could be in your workplace. It could be anywhere in your sphere of influence. Now, when we change the framework of being on mission to this, it gives way for more compassion, more empathy, more humility. And there's a saying that many Christians say that Christianity is really just about one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Not the one who saves, not the one who's the hero, not the one who's the savior. But just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. And so as we continue, Jesus gives an outline of what it means and what it looks like to disciple. And he says there's three things, at least in this Matthew 28 verse. It says, first, he says, baptize. Go and therefore make disciples of all nations. By doing what? By first baptizing. Well, what does that mean? Baptism, or this, the original word baptisto in the Greek, is the word to immerse. It's to fully immerse somebody. It's to saturate somebody. It's a physical act that symbolizes death, resurrection, and new life. And literally, when I baptize people in the baptistry, I, you know you know, plug their nose, and I bring them underwater, and I say, uh, crucified with Christ, and when they come out of the water, I say, raised to new life. And this demonstrates with your life, your physical life, when you are immersed, that you are choosing a different way, a better way to live. And when Jesus says, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, saying, show people what it looks like to be fully immersed in faith, how to live the, the, what I would call the Sermon on the Mount kind of life, the Beatitudes kind of life. And if you do that, if you love like Jesus, look like Jesus, if you serve like Jesus, be generous like Jesus, and just love others with a non-judgmental attitude and to just want to be with others, especially the marginalized, especially be a voice with those that don't have a voice. If we do things the way that Jesus did, that is to saturate people and to immerse people into the life of walking with Christ. 
And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot. Now, this isn't about this verse, but just quickly, salt, especially in the first century, was meant for a few different things, to add flavor, which we know about, uh, to preserve foods, especially meats, because they didn't have fancy refrigerators like we do today, and to clean. Salt was a cleaning agent. And so the idea is when people see you, the way you live, the way you treat people, the way you worship, the way you live your life, the way that you go to work, the way that you do work, whatever it is, is it flavorful? Like, is it attractive? Is it cleansing? Does it preserve especially the good news of Jesus, or does it deteriorate it? Does it harm it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about this verse. He says, the salt of the earth. They are the most noblest assets, the highest value the world possesses. Without the earth, without them, the earth can no longer survive. And then in verse 14 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. So do live your life of faith so people can see what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And then he says, instead, they put it on a stand and give it light to everyone in the house. And get this, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. As you are going, do you see injustices around you? What do you do? As you are going, do you have an opportunity to practice radical generosity and hospitality? If you are a boss, do you treat your employers at all levels with equal level of respect and kindness and compassion? If you are an employee, do you work as if you're working for the Lord? When you see the weak and the marginalized, do you stand up? Do you speak truth? When you see people in pain or, or in hurt, do you help? Do you serve? And again, this is not a signal of, of how virtuous you might be, or, but it's so that when people, again, as verse 16 says, that when people see your good deeds, they will glorify God. So first, baptize. That's how we disciple. We show people what it looks like to live a life of love and faith and of Christ and of hope. Second, he says, then teach them. So not only baptize, but teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. When questions come, especially when you decide to live differently from our culture, from our world, questions will come. We point people to Christ and the promise that Christ will reconcile all things and make things new. Jesus tells his disciples to openly say the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, that means don't hide the reality that Jesus is the headwaters of our hope, our service, our healing, our capacity for generosity. Jesus is the headwaters for peace and reconciliation, for forgiveness and healing. And get this, and for this very reason, 
Here's what I believe. I believe that we would be cheating people if we did not tell them that the source of our hope is in Jesus. I recently read an article by Larry Towton, who's an author, a columnist, a cultural commentator is what he identifies as. And he's debated people regarding faith against people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And he wrote an article called Listening to Young Atheists. And he retells in this article a, uh, an interview he had with a college student. And he says this, students heard plenty of messages encouraging social justice, community involvement, and being good, but they seldom saw the relationship between that message and with Jesus Christ and with the Bible. And then he says, listen to Stephanie, a student at Northwestern. Here's what, they, here's what the interview entailed. The, she said, the connection between Jesus and a person's life was not made clear. And then the author continues and says, this is an insightful critique. She seems to have an intuitive understanding that the church does not simply exist to address social ills, but to proclaim the teachings of its founder, Jesus Christ, and their relevance to the world. Since Stephanie did not see the connection, she saw little incentives to stay. And so our jobs as Christians, in order for us to disciple people, is first show them what that looks like, to be a witness of the way that Jesus has healed you, me, us as a church, as Jesus has been with us and for us and has loved us, has provided for us, has been our peace, our hope, our joy. Jesus asks us to live that out, to be a living embodiment of Christ. So when people see us, they ask questions. And within those questions, we respond with the answer of pointing people to Jesus. Not to ourselves, but to Jesus. And lastly, not only baptize, but to teach, but it's to remember. It says, remember that I am with you till the end of the age. Matthew 28, 13 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus wants us to remember, that all authority in heaven has been given to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus will be with us to the very end of age. That means every day of our lives, Christ is with us, with you, with me. The Spirit of God is with us, with you, with me, with our church. And so through that spirit, not through our own strength, not through our own merit, not through our own willingness or ambitiousness, but through the spirit, may we live a life that embodies the nature of Jesus, the character of who Jesus was in the scripture and who he is now. Love, forgiveness, peace, joy, patience, kindness, the things that we talked about in the last series of the fruit of the spirit. Now, when we do that in the ordinary, in our everyday lives, whether we're going to work, whether we're going to school, whether we're going to wherever it is, when we embody these characteristics, that is discipling people, whether you say anything or not. And to be a follower of Christ is not only to live that life, but to also point people to Jesus, the source of everything that we do and everything that we have.
So, as you are going, disciple. That means to baptize people, immerse them in our faith, in Christ's love. Teach what it means to obey Christ and to remember that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit every single day to do this. So at this time, I want to invite the worship band back up as we enter a time of reflection. And maybe at this time, it's a moment of, of praying. God, a couple things. God, where have I failed to embody your nature in my life? Is it with my pride? Is it with anger? Is it with greed? Is it the way that I treat the people closest to me? And if that's the case, God, would, would this morning be a morning where we repent and we change of our ways and say, you know what? Everything that we do, everything that I do, I want to embody the loving nature of Christ. Or maybe in this moment, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is putting names on your hearts to share the gospel with. Not in a condescending or judgmental or a hero-centric way, but in a way that's like one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Where does your hope come from? Where does your peace come from? Where does your ability to love come? Where does your generosity come? Now I would submit to you that comes from Christ, our living hope. And if that is the case, may we as a people of God live that life to share with people in our actions what it means to follow Jesus and then cross the bridge that we build in sharing the name of Christ, Jesus. Change our whole lives. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have saved us, not just so we can go to a place after we die, although that we anticipate and we long for, but we also know that you saved us from oftentimes our own selves, our own greed, our own anger, our own ego so we can be a person of love and hospitable to be hospitable and generous to others and to serve one another and to love our neighborhood and the people around us to love people that are what society would deem as the most unlovable God thank you for the capacity for us to do that and help us to do that and when we do that may we point directly to you it's our source of strength and our ability. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.